We are back. Episode 11, Stem Cell Core Facilities. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannett, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, my man. How's it going? It's going pretty well, man. I will say um, found out that one of my papers was recently accepted, so oh, that's always a nice boost. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I, considered it, I don't know if podcasts are considered media, so I, not, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it until like uh, it's officially online. So uh, I got that off my chest because I've been, is you this, know, I want to... Is this your uh, first publication as a PI? This is my second publication as a PI, but this one feels really good because it was, you know, my first real... Uh, organically grown idea from the lab with one of my grad my grad students. It was, you know, it just it means a little bit more. Uh, and so I want to congrats to my team, uh, so, Sarah Hirsch and Nathan Bowles out there for for a well job done. So when we say uh, PI, we mean principal investigator, and these guys are like lab heads, people who head a lab. But you know, I like analogies, so they're kind of like the Jedi Knights of the trade. And we are Padwans or, you know, <laughs> training under you guys. So that, yeah, that's pretty um, good. So yeah, it was a cool, it was a cool, uh, it was a cool feeling. Um, and then the other thing I want to quickly do is that we talked about the conference that we started in Saratoga that's, uh, back on this year. It's a stem cell conference focused around younger scientists, younger investigators. So the registration will be is now live. So I would like everybody out there to go check it out. You can it's called the Next Gen Next Gen Stem Cell Conference. You can get it at www.nextgen so N E X T G E N stem cell.com and get on there and register. We had some guests um, previous that are going to be speakers, uh, Justine Miller. Uh, you heard her talk about Parkinson's her work. She'll be a speaker. Our guest tonight, Dr. Mark Tomashima, that I'll have Yost introduce in a minute. He'll be a speaker. It'll be a good time. The Stem Cell Podcast will be there. And, Yost, what I'm going to do here is if you register and use the code PODCAST, y'all going to get a discount on the registration. So make that work. Oh, sounds good. Sounds so, good. So, Yost, we have a real awesome stem cell guru, uh, I like to call him, Dr. Mark Tomashima. Why don't you give a little brief intro before we get into the roundups? Oh, well, Mark uh, owns, owns, he is the head of a stem cell core facility. And I think we need to bring on uh, the cores because more and more it's like cores are the backbone of a lot of research these days. Like think about all the bio, you know, the the molecular biology cores, the people who do all the bioinformatics and the gene chips. And a stem cell core is maybe a novel idea, but um, extremely valuable to uh, spreading the skills set and sort of like the you know if this were the dawn of french chef or pastry remember my last analogy these are the first <laughs> these are the first culinary schools uh that you could attend to actually learn a craft in a crash course or you know get some services done so i think it's good to talk to uh mark and he's also the president of a core facility group um so hopefully he'll uh you know expand on those topics for us and I know Mark is right now very involved in getting um, preclinical work with stem cells, meaning he's in a process where the, the cells the application he's working on for clinical trial is very near in the future. So he'll have some really good insights. So we won't uh, we won't take up too much time here, Yosef. Let's let's get started because I know we're going to have a lot to talk about with Mark. So I will 
bring it over to Yost for his uh, his roundup. What do you got, man? Yeah, so in uh, PLOS One, uh, I was reading this today, PLOS One, the uh, Public Library of Science. Uh, what's the one stand for? Is that like KRS-One, you know? Over- I, I, yeah, I don't know, actually. Maybe, is it, was it the one of the first open access journals there they have? No, they're all open access plus. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I know uh, KRS-One is knowledge reigns supreme over nearly everybody. Sun low. Hip hop reference, but uh, the uh, plus plus one uh, journal uh, uh, discovered they they described a new dolphin species, which amazes me. That you know, I can understand if you find a new bacteria or even like some plankton or something at the bottom of the ocean, but this is a new river dolphin that was discovered in Brazil. This is the first uh, river dolphin to be found since 1918, and it's one of I, only... I wanna, dude, I want to discover like a new dolphin species. I feel like if I discovered a new dolphin species, I'd be pretty happy with my career. I'd be like, yo, man, I found, a, I found a dolphin. What did you find? Well, I would definitely name it after me or something cool, <laughs> but it's called the Araguaia river dolphin and it was discovered in brazil and uh it's one of only four species of river dolphins wow and i think one of them went extinct in like 2006 some chinese river dolphin but this one's down south america so i thought that was pretty cool cool um yeah what's our favorite journal Penis. <laughs> yes, the public proceedings at National Academy <laughs> of Science. Uh, there was a study uh, recently show, uh, showing that the disruption of uh, sleep timing uh, can ch- ch- cause a six-fold reduction in the number of genes that uh, displayed cardiac rhythms. Um, so uh, basically 97% of rhythmic genes became arrhythmic when they mess with these people's sleep times. Uh, really? So Yeah, they disturbed their sleeping. So uh, that's kind of why we feel so crappy when we're jet lagged. So um, I thought that was interesting, too, that uh, they saw a six-fold reduction in the number of uh, rhythmic or, you know, circadian wow. genes. So, um, yeah. Um, one sort of on the weird and spooky note, uh, I don't know if you about know about uh, the Mars rover. Um, that thing's out there taking photos of the Mars surface looking for, you know, basically underground rivers and evidence of life and all sorts of ice and crazy stuff. But um, there was a mysterious rock that just showed up out of nowhere. There, They had the two images before and after, and you should check it out. It's just type in rock and mars and rover and uh, you'll see this mysterious rock it just sort of showed up out of nowhere and it has science nasa scientists baffled apparently has high concentrations of magnesium and sulfur because they've analyzed it but they have no idea where it came from it's like somebody just threw it in front of the rover or came out of the sky that's so wild yeah you have to check it out it's it's a pretty so what are they thinking they think like it's like they're completely baffled I, I mean, I could just imagine like people sitting around NASA, just like what, like what, like I, you know, like uh, that like, was, you know, with their thumb, like licking their thumb and like trying to wipe the screen off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, oh, man. On the sort of going with this theme of freakiness, there was a nature communications uh, study showing a self-propelled biohybrid swimming bot. And you should check out the video for this thing. It's uh, It's got this little flagella. It looks like a robotic uh, sperm, essentially. And it's uh, powered by cardiac cells. They placed them in three different spaces in this biohybrid uh, self-propelling uh I don't know what you call it. It's almost like a creature, but it had cardiac cells powering the flagella. And um, I just thought that was pretty cool. What? Yeah. Yeah. And it had this like low Reynolds number. I don't know if you know what the Reynolds number is, but it's like this. uh, Only Reynolds I know is Reynolds wrap. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Uh, uh, The Reynolds number is like this biofluid dynamics. I mean, not bio, but fluid dynamics uh, constant. And, um, having a low Reynolds number Damn, is sort of like crazy, yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. So that's in nature communications. Um, did you know they, uh, decoded the hookworm DNA? This was published in nature, uh, genetics. And this is a big deal cause it, uh, infects about 700 million infections. So a lot of hookworm out there are just, know that uh hookworms pretty uh it used to be a big deal back in the day when there were outhouses and i guess there's still a lot of outhouses i've seen slum dog millionaires so having hookworm always freaked me out man always freaked me out hookworm i always felt like i was going to get hookworm if i went i don't know well some people are taking it uh to balance out the like hyper sanitization of i saw yeah i've yeah, heard about that yeah man. it's for treatments from like crohn's Whoa. to anything like autoimmune. uh they're saying that this sort of dive Verts the immune system towards the hookworm instead of attacking you because I guess the immune system gets bored or whatever. It starts attacking you instead of uh, things like hookworm because we live in this hyper-sanitized world. So now people are taking hookworm for things like asthma and I've heard even Crohn's. So. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, whatever. Um, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, that... That I guess we can't come up with a funny uh, name for that, but the <laughs> Nugem, Nugem, yes, study showing that uh, Pretelivir, Pretelivir. I don't know how you describe this uh, drug, but it's a new drug that can reduce the viral shedding of herpes simplex two, the old cor- cold sore uh, producer. So um, this is a big deal because cold sores or herpes. Um, infects you know uh it's a it's like one sixth of the population and uh the simplex two is the more uh dangerous one there's simplex one and simplex two and this uh drug called pretelivir uh was able to uh reduce the percentage of days where the virus was shedding from out uh, 28 days it reduced it from 17 percent of those days to two percent so, yeah, see, the shedding, you know, is not, I'm not a fan of the shedding. The sheddings are the problems at. Dude, nothing sounds worse than viral shedding. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible. It's horrible. And Why it, are all antivirals end in ear, IR? That's a good question. You I, never notice that? Like, Gancyclovir, all those things. They're yeah. all ears. Yeah, I know a we'll lot. We'll have to find that out. A That's, lot of the sh- monoclonal antibodies are MAB at the end, you know, monoclonal a- antibody. Hmm. But, you know, this one's like, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. That's, that's an anti. I bet that that if that drug works out to be, 
Uh, it's a drug, you said, right? Yeah. Uh, that that I know a lot of people in the market for that. You know? Oh man, I mean, it, it, there hasn't been a new like the antivirals for. Uh, we've had the same thing since like the eighties. Uh, for you know, I I forget what it's called against Ciclovir. No, it's it's something else. But um, it really hasn't changed. Our treatment hasn't changed. There's like three classes of drugs, and it's the yeah. same one since it's like the Valtrex. Age. Remember? Yeah, all that stuff. It's it, it real. There isn't a new treat. It's kind of like wow, man. We're still living with herpes. It's I mean, yeah. I guess we still had the flu too. So. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk with that. We'll talk. We can talk with Mark about that later on about herpes viruses. He's a virologist. All right. Uh, the journal Pain. Uh, there was a study showing a higher sensitivity to pain correlates with less gray matter in the posterior cingulate cortex, the precuneus uh, region, and the posterior parietal cortex. So this was all shown uh, via MRI. So I guess if you're sensitive to pain, you may have uh, less of those regions uh gray matter at least um so i thought that was interesting a lot of mri you know i'm into the mri stuff um sort of bad news the science budget in uh the new budget that was proposed in uh the u.s uh congress was uh apparently 714 million dollars less than the funding in 2013 which is insane if you account for inflation that's like a huge cut so um i yeah. saw that man i saw this Ugh, and it's it's actually 950 million less than 2012 i mean almost a billion dollars which you know is peanuts compared to what you know, uh, peanuts compared peanuts. to, yeah, I mean, quantitative easing that was like 80 billion a month that, that Wall Street gets to play with. We're asking for like peanuts coming. I think the whole NIH budget's less, it's in the low 30 billion. It's like 30 yeah. billion or something like that. <sighs> Don't get me started. That's below their nose with that. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, so yeah, uh, less science funding because people don't think that's a good idea apparently in Congress. <laughs> uh, um, uh, there was a cell report study showing that mTOR, uh, inhibitors, what, what does that stand for? It's one of those old school genes, uh, mTOR pathway. Uh, mTOR is so, like a rapid myosin. Let's see, yeah. rapid myosin or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mTOR. It's like mammalian target of rapid myosin, I think. Yes, Sorry, that's ahead. it. The target of rapamycin, thank you. Uh, can, inhibitors can alter uh, protein translation and uh, increase the amount of electrical coordination in the heart. So uh, they're thinking that mTOR inhibitors may be a new treatment for arrhythmias and heart disease. So cool, yeah. Awesome. So you can find that in cell reports. And uh, there was a Nature Communications study from the Zlokovich lab uh, showing in they mix these uh, APP mice, the amyloid precursor protein, I think it stands for, uh, with the PDGFR receptor beta mice. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, what is that, platelet-derived growth factor receptor? Yep. Yes. Uh, so yep. they mix these two mutant mice together. And, you know, these APP mice have uh, a mild Alzheimer's-like phenotype. And um, but when they mix it with these uh, PDGF receptor beta uh, mutant mice, and uh, these mice have like a parasite uh, 
mutations essentially that that mutation affects the parasites which are involved in the formation of the blood brain barrier so you've got the combination of uh APP with the blood brain barrier defect showing that they had um the low parasites in the blood brain barrier can enhance the alzheimer's disease phenotype and this was uh, due through the transporting of beta amyloids. Uh, so these plaques oh. that form in Alzheimer's disease. So uh, Nature Communications, you can find that. Maybe a new model for Alzheimer's disease, wow. which we always need. We uh, do need those. Yeah. And uh, I think I'll just file it up with a uh, Karolinska Institute study in uh, the journal Cell. And the reason why I have to talk about this is because I just went to a talk um, about neurogenesis. Uh, they basically use this is an older study from I think mid 2013, but it's in the journal cell, and they showed they use uh, carbon dating, uh, radioactive, not radioactive, but C14, uh, the isotope of uh, carbon that you know when people talk about carbon dating, that's what they're using, um, and uh, they used uh, essentially you know the how. We exploded a bunch of atomic uh, bombs in between the 50s and 60s. After 1963, there was a limited test ban treaty. Um, and uh, basically, that stopped all these <laughs> large explosions and the amount of C-14 in the atmosphere declined. And so they were able to use that uh, with post-mortem brains that were donated and essentially did some crazy calculations to uh, judging by that rate of decay and the amount of divisions in the cell uh, detect how many neurons were born in the human on a daily basis. And they came up with 1,400 neurons born every day in the hippocampus. You know, I remember this. I remember, oh uh, man, I remember this being presented. I think it was at Neuroscience. Uh, it was wild, and I remember, I remember the gra the picture. Yeah, showed. Oh man, what was the name of the? Uh, what's the name of the general? Do you know the name of the scientist in the study? No, I don't. But they're at Karolinska. I think it's Jonas Jonas Friesen. I think actually Karolinska, I believe. Yeah, Karolinska. yeah, but that's so crazy, right? Who would ever think that? Yeah, they <laughs> used uh, fifty-five people uh, post-mortem uh, brains donated that were uh, the ages of nineteen to ninety-two. And they showed that one third of all neurons in the hippocampus regularly renewed, which is wow. Yeah, I mean, they, I just w went to a talk on like some of these beautiful images of uh, what they're doing now with the reconstruction. Instructions. You could like zoom into the brain and look into it like it's a weird. forest now. Yeah, call yeah, Carl Dicer off at Stanford. They've you know yep. the the velocity software, the way they're able to make the brain like almost like this this three D thing that we can uh, essentially go through with light and scan and just you can almost like it feels like you're in a machine, a virtual reality machine, you could travel through the brain and look at all the connections uh, depending on how you stain the tissue. And uh, it's really amazing. It's no longer 2D images. It's it's like 3D virtual reality trips uh, that you can take throughout the parenchyma, the brain tissue. It's 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 quite fascinating. And, you know, all the, a lot of that's done with mouse, but I just thought that this uh, unique method of... Uh, 
determining, you know, we've done it with, uh, in the past, I, I think they use tritium, H3, whatever, to, you know, the original Altman studies back in 1960s where they first described neurogenesis. Um, to now we use BRDU, all these things incorporate into the DNA and are technically mutagens. Um, but using something natural and this test ban treaty and the history of, uh, you know, the World War, you know, atomic, the Cold War and the testing of all these uh, weapons and how it stopped at 1963 and they can carbon date uh, using these formula. I just thought the whole thing was fascinating. So uh, not despite the fact that we're making a lot of neurons every day in our hippocampus. so No, it's really, really cool. Like I said, I remember seeing that and being blown away. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, and I guess how else are you going to remember all these, you know, everything that happens in the last two days? But have you seen uh, the 60 Minutes about these high-functioning people who could remember their yeah, memory? Yeah, every- that was nuts. Those kids, you'd be like, you know, what was January 14th, 1942? They're like Wednesday. Yeah, and apparently it's like we all have this uh, file cabinet ability, but we just can't uh, pull it out. So, uh, well, we need to we need we need a, a higher functioning hippocampus. I guess is the is the idea, right? Yeah, no, it's like those cabinets where it's like locked and you can't find the key and to open it, it's like it halfway it it only pulls out like a half an inch. It's sort of like that. It, it's there. Our memories are there, but uh, for some reason, after two days, we sort of forget it all, and it, it unless it's a major event. Um, so. Uh, neurogenesis, it's sort of what brought me into the stem cell field. So I, I'm always fascinated. So that's about it. Uh, what, what do you say uh, we uh, move on? Well, thank you, my man. Um, let's do some stem cell stuff before we bring Mark on. I'm going to go through quick because, again, I think we're going to talk to Mark for a bit. So um, what do we got? So we got a company called Plori Stem Therapeutics Incorporated. They said that their uh, results from um, – they're in an early mid-stage clinical trial – uh, with their placenta-derived stem cells for the treatment of muscle injury. They, so they said that they were safe, and they provided evidence that the cells might be effective in treating orthopedic injuries. We all know now Peyton Manning's going to the Super Bowl. Peyton Manning had a uh, stem cell injection in his knee. I don't know where he did. I know he went overseas. The idea is you take your own cells and put it back to rejuvenate. And so this company, I think it's an Israeli company, um, it's called uh, the, tra- the the name of the product is PLXPAD or Pluristem. So uh, they were originally using it in a different application. Now they're doing it for these uh, muscle disorders. They injected into the muscle of a seven-year-old Romanian girl, I guess, who had some sort of bone marrow aplasia disease, and. Um, you know, she, there was some sort of remarkable, uh, she, there was a remarkable effect. She was released from the hospital and a lot of positives. And so now they're, they're exploring that option for orthopedic injuries. So that, the name of the company there is Pluristem Therapeutics. Wait a minute. They're taking stems, uh, stem cells from placentas? Placenta derived. That's what it says. Placenta derived stem cells. And they're yep. injecting them into, uh, age match. I mean, not age match, but HLA match people like, they have similar immune systems, or what? Uh, what's? I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a. Um, it's it, it's going to reject, so there must be immunosuppression. I'm not familiar with the whole like protocol. Wow. Uh, but I do know that you know over there they have what's called that. Um, you can approve procedures under the what's called compassionate use. So you know if patients are just like no hope, 
they they allow them to do these kind of, I don't want to call them experimental, but these kind of last... Yeah, you know, and, and they mean, found that when they did that, that this had a significant increase in red, red, red blood cells, white cells, and platelets, and so now okay. they're going to look into that. So this is a blood disease. I thought I thought it was something like battens. Yeah. I mean, stuff like battens. You you know, or the it, you can make cases for. I mean, these kids are going to die anyway. So it's I know. So it's, it's really sad. So okay, great. Um, let's see. So there was a um, the Mayo Clinic. There was a decade long project on using stem cells to repair damaged heart tissue, uh, and that recently, in the last few days, has won federal approval for human testing. So that's pretty good. That's pretty awesome. So that's this is that could have major implications for millions of people with heart disease. So the FDA has approved a uh, clinical trial for 240 patients with chronic so. And chronic advanced systematic heart failure. All right, so it's you know pretty severe to see if this pr- procedure uh, could produce a significant improvement in heart function. Um, so basically, what it is is that uh, it's, this is developed in collaboration with the bio some Cardio Three Bioscience Belgium. It involves harvesting stem cells from the bone marrow from the in the hip. So you can go in there with a needle, get the bone marrow. And then you direct those bone marrow stem cells to become what they call cardiopoietic. I'm assuming that's meaning to, you know, down the cardiac lineage. And then they inject them back into their heart and where they differentiate into muscle tissue and can help restore function. So this is one federal approval for human testing in this country. Oh, it's a little better than my biohybrid synth bots. In the I don't know, zone. man. You're, I like those synth bots. <laughs> you gotta, that's like that's like a long term thing. This thing looks like. I mean, look. It's they said a decade long project. So congrats to them. It must be a great feat to know now they're going to try to go into humans. That's awesome. Yeah, cool. Um, all right. So yo, so I thought you would appreciate this. Um, Doctor Wu Suk Wang, the Korean, infamous, famous, and now making he, a comeback. He didn't clone man, but he cloned man's best friend. So, yeah, so this gentleman, uh, Dr. Huang, I'm just going to call him, he was, right, he was like the most, God, you remember when that hit, Yosef? He, I mean, this was, what, 10 years ago now. Um, for, so this was in, oh gosh, I want to say, yeah, 2004-ish, 2005. Science uh, Magazine. Science Magazine, he basically created, you know, from eggs, he generated a stem cells from human eggs. It was like, whoa. It was, it was the first cloning paper, but he apparently he fabricated the data and not, uh, he didn't clone man, but he cloned the first dog and made the first parthenogenic human line. Um, and also, I think there was an issue where he was at, his, his grad students were donating their eggs. There's just a lot of unethical things going down. Anyway, it was his big, big, huge thing. And he was uh, thoroughly it, disgraced. Thoroughly it was disgraced. Bad. It was, yeah, bad. And anyway, so he's been at an institute where, so he's gotten funding from people who support his work. And now he's gone on. He's been cloning hundreds of animals. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of animals. He's a vet by training. Um, published in his new lab, they're publishing reputable journals about their advances. He's, you know, high-profile cloning projects, including like cloning talented police dogs. Uh, he's now trying to do endangered species to clone endangered species. Um, and so, there, science and nature both did an article on him uh, and a write-up on him, talking about how he's making a comeback in the in the field. So, um, 
You well, know? I'm into redemption. Second chances, bring it on. Unless you're Anthony Weiner, then I'm over that guy. <laughs> I think a lot of people are. Yeah. So I thought that was cool because uh, that was a big, big deal, and I like to see that he just kept grinding. You know, he kept moving. Yeah. Um. So I'm gonna tell some primary papers quick, and then we'll we'll go on to Mark. Got to give a shout out to uh, a friend and colleague at the Neural Stem Cell Institute, Dr. Timothy Blankensop. He just had a paper. Uh, he's a senior author on a paper published out of the institute. Uh, it's called Human RPE Stem Cells Grown in a Polarized mo- RPE Monolayer Are Maintained After Grafting into rat- Rabbit Subretinal Space. So we talked about the RPE as a potential uh, product for uh, blinding disorders. You know, you can replace the bad RPE. And so they took RPE derived from their stem cell they've described, their RPE stem cell, um, and they put it on these these uh, took these monolayers and they put it on this polyester matrix, and then they grafted the matrix, um, you know, the cells on the matrix into the subretinal space, and they were able to see in the eye this very nice polarized human RPE monolayer, and so what they were really showing was that this could you know this is a viable product that you can put into a model and they use rabbit because they have bigger eyes you know so it's an easier target um they'll and they'll go in and they'll stay there so um this is a nice advance for the product of uh, rpe stem cell being a uh, hopefully one day a future clinical uh therapeutic yeah we're big on the rpe that's for sure big on the rpe there was a paper in Cell Stem Cell called An Effective Approach to Prevent Immune Rejection of Human ESC-Derived Allografts. Um, it, this is by a, uh, a group, uh, Gilly Rong is the first author. And this is kind of cool, Joseph. What, so part of the problem with ES, human ES-derived cells is that when you put it into someone, you're putting it into somebody else. So they're going to reject, most likely. That's the hypothesis. So we did this. Remember, if, if I took Joseph's stem cells and put those cells into my brain, it would reject because I'm not Yosef. So what they did was they took ES cells, human ES cells, and they they overexpressed. So they had these cells constitutively express two genes. One is CTLA-4, which is a cytotoxic T lymphocyte, and the other one is PDL one And both of these are triggers to turn the immune system off. I've heard about this technique before. I've actually yes. Yeah, so like yeah, it's cool. So the proteins that like turn T cells like keep them at bay. And so what they did was they they demonstrated that um, they are basically these cells are immune protected when you graft them as compared to a regular uh, situation where you would just put you know the some allogeneic situation it would it would reject. So they think it's a possible strategy to uh, help. Uh, foreign cells not be rejected when they put them into someone else. These are like the stealth bombers of, uh, you know, they, these guys fly under the radar then from the immune system. They're able yeah, they to do. Yeah, yeah, they do. not get stealth. rejected. I like a stealth bomber. You're on point with the analogies. Dude, I'm all about the analogies. On I'm like point, a, you know, I wish I had that many analogies. Yeah, it's a, it's a hallmark of a good rapper. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, man. <laughs> Okay, so lastly here, uh, we got to talk about the organoid because remember we, we said organoids were going to be the wave. Um, so redefine, this is a paper, uh, also cell stem cell. This is redefining in the in vivo origin of metanephric nephron progenitors. Oh, yeah, that's a great name right there. Metanephric nephron. Metanephric <laughs> nephron. <laughs> Enables the generation of complex kidney structures from pluripotent stem cells. Basically, people, what they did was they made a rudimentary kidney. I'm sorry, they made a, ru- okay. yeah, they made a rudimentary kidney. That's good. Uh, so they were able to 
in this 3D structure uh, make what seem to have three-dimensional aspects of a kidney, like the uh, little branches, the, 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 the tubules, and the, the lumina. So we talked yeah. about... Was there a Lupa Henley there? I didn't see the Lupa Henley. Okay. I love I love me a good Lupa Henley. <laughs> but and with with that, I will say that on the news two days ago, I saw that this Hub Foundation for Organoid Technology announced it signed a licensing agreement with Stem Cell Technologies for the manufacturing and distribution of cell culture media to grow organoids. There did you go. Did you say organoids? Because that is the like hot word, the key word. I mean, that is. That is a hot word right there. Organoid. I just I just talk about I just weave that into my daily life. Yeah. Organoid. Just bring that up when you're eating lunch with someone, non scientific. Yeah. Just be like, do you know about those organoids? That is that is the hot word. You're, you're, yeah, if you could drop that word on a daily basis, you're winning. Organoids and crypt. That's it. That's all you need to know. What was what was the second one? So that's what I got. Let's close this one, and we'll bring. Uh, should we do it or what? Should we move on? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's only yet one better word than organoids, and that's mesonephros. Mesonephros, nephros, nephari. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. All right, Chris. So why don't you bring on our next guest? So, all right, Yos. We've been we've been waiting to have this uh, gentleman on the podcast since we started. He's a a good friend of Yosef and myself. We've both worked with him in some capacity uh, for some time now. Uh, his name is Dr. Mark Tomashima. Mark will be also. I'm just going to plug a speaker at the Next Gen Conference we talked about earlier in the show. Uh, he will be there speaking. Gives you another reason to come by. And Mark is at the SKI Stem Cell Research Facility. He is the director there. He is a stem cell guru, and he's the man you want to ask if you got issues or you want to use some stem cells. So, Dr. Mark Tomashima, welcome aboard, man. What's up? Not much. Thanks for having me. No problem, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think it's kind of uh, it's cool when we get some some peeps back from back in the day in this uh, podcast setting. We could. We can talk in this kind of forum, right, Yos? Yeah, so uh, you should uh, say SKI Sloan Kettering Institute here in New York City. And uh, I mark, I, I, I mark, I work with How's Mark on a, yeah, I work with Mark on a daily basis. So it's, it's lovely to uh, see him every, every day, almost, except for the weekends. You never, I never see you that early. Because I know yeah, you come in. Not not as much anymore these days. Dude, Mark's got that thing planned out, man. Now he's a professional stem cell grower and feeder. He's got that schedule all worked out. <laughs> yeah, so, I do I do my best to rely on my people nowadays, thankfully. So all right. So let's 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 go into it. This is an episode where we're talking about the stem cell core facilities, because this is a stem cell podcast. There are other core facilities, obviously. And so I guess Mark, start there. I mean, tell us Tell us really, and tell everyone out there, obviously, Yosa and I know, tell everybody out there, um, you know, uh, the substance behind a core facility, and in particular, the stem cell research facility, a core facility, and what you would like, you know, what you try to provide with that facility to, to, to researchers. Yeah, sure. So um, the facility does a lot of different things. Um, I think maybe one of the most important functions that we, we try to provide to the community is trying to teach people how to grow cells. So there's lots of different labs that come from outside of the field and, and want to jump in, especially to human pluripotent stem cell biology, but um, it can be a tough hurdle to clear. And so facilities like ours can, can help people, can, can teach them, um, can provide cells to them, um, and, and can really teach them this, the nuances and the tricks of the trade that I know you guys are well aware of. Um, and, and hopefully get people up and running and, and get them going on projects that they're interested in, in 
accomplishing in their laboratories. Yeah, this is really understated. I mean, how long would you say? I, I think it takes about six months to just get the basics down, and you try and break that down into how long in your courses? Like a month or yeah, two? It's, well, it depends on the course. I mean, a, a basic culture cl- course is really just a couple days, three, okay. two, three days, depending on the group in question. But, you know, that's just to sort of get you pointed in the right direction. And I, I think it's six months is not unreasonable at all to really get a project up and running. Um, it takes a good two months, three months, I think, to really start getting going. And, of, of course, as you all know, it all depends on how reagents are going and, and how everything's going in the lab. It takes a while to get things set up and running. Unfortunately, and, I think it, it took me like two or three years to actually get good with human ESLs, because they're they're really finicky, wouldn't you say, uh, compared yeah, to other cells? <laughs> I, I always tell people it, it's like having children, uh, because yeah. at any given time it could just go AWOL, and you you, you know it, you you think that everything was fine, and then all of a sudden you come in the lab one day, look down the microscope, and your cells are just like bye bye. See you later. Yeah, you know? yeah. and it's so very temperamental. exactly. But I guess, like you know, to what Mark is saying is, you gotta have, you gotta be able to start somewhere. You know, there are techniques, standardized techniques, basic. You know, how to grow, what what people do in the field, and then it's like anything else. It's just experience. They let them get in the yeah. hood, and they, you know, they infect their cells, and they get them all gross. But eventually, you know, it uh, it gets back on track. Well, not with Mark's excellent uh, sterile, hygienic, you know, everything. Uh, Mark, <laughs> Mark's pretty, uh, what would you say, OCD or paranoid? What? It, it makes for good, clean cultures, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, I've been, I've been accused of uh, all that and more. Best cell culturists are paranoid. If you're not paranoid, you're not being careful. And I just a quick, quick, quick story. Mark, when I was first starting, I got infected myself with this stuff bacteria called mycoplasma. Oh, which is, it's just a bad word for for cell culturists. It's just a bacteria that gets in your cells. It subtly destroys them. It's and everywhere. It spreads like fire. It's so in I your testes, this. right? It's in your testes, right? The mycoplasma. Yeah, I think, is it really? Yeah, it's everywhere, man. That thing. Is, <laughs> yeah. It's it's the most it's the most basic genome. I, I, it's, oh my! It well, literally so, yeah. So it is everywhere, and that's the problem. So I, I I was like, oh, my cells have mycoplasma. That stinks. And I'm all naive, and I walk over to Mark's lab, and I stick my head in there, and I'm like, Mark, I got mycoplasma. And he's like, all right, leave the room, take a shower, and then we can talk when you're all clean. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably told you to take a bleach shower. <laughs> oh, man. So anyway. Autoclave dig- yourself. We digress. So, um, so training is one aspect. Uh, training is an aspect. Providing pluripotent stem cells uh, is something else we do. We do reprogramming in-house. So people can bring you know, skin cells from uh, their disease of interest and, and have cells made in, in-house. So, uh, so that's obviously we talked about that on the show, Joseph. IPS cells and reprogramming. So, Mark, you've been in this since that boom. Have you noticed it with people being like, "Hey, I want to reprogram this guy because they're sick"? Is, do you see that now as becoming a major, you know, kind of point of service? Yeah, it's 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 incredible to have witnessed the growth and and to have watched what's happened um, since Yamanaka's discovery. It's just it's really been amazing to watch. I haven't personally really seen any sort of case by case basis necessarily, but there are so many human geneticists now that are are moving into our field, and I think that that's really been a, a very interesting, uh, sort of still emerging 
area of growth for stem cell biology, you know, for us to learn more about sequencing individuals, to have these individuals that are able to go through and sift through that sort of data, and then to give them a a testable system that they can go back and use, assuming we're going to be up to that task of being able to reprogram these people, make a relevant cell type of interest, and then show the phenotype in question. And I think, you know, when we can really round that circle all the way, we've, we've really created a very powerful system. Yeah. Um, have you ever been approached, just curious, by like somebody who just wanted their own cell line? <laughs> Not really. Okay, good. Not really. <laughs> I, was, I was just wondering. Uh, so we should also talk about, um, you are the president of the Facts Core Society. Of, what's it called? It's called uh, stem cell coordinates. Oh, so uh, I, love play, that, I love that name. Play off the I love name. Um, so this is really a group that that came from Sunita D'Souza, who's a core head at, at Mount Sinai. Um, Sunita put together this idea. You know, we were we were all part of the um, first group that was, was lucky enough to get funding from the state of New York, the organization called NYSTEM that I know you guys have discussed previously on on the podcast. And it was our intention to try to get the core facilities that received that funding and, and try to work together. And this organization has since grown and, and, and started to pick up other core facilities that are um, really across the, the country now and, you know, maybe even around the world at some point. And, you know, we've been trying to curb the growth at some level because it, it becomes difficult to manage. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, we'll, we'll just let it grow as much as we can. Um, and, and the idea for the group is really to share experiences with each other, um, try to decide on best practices and, and methods to accomplish those practices. All of us do a lot of quality control of reagents, and I know this is an, another thing that Yosef has ranted about in the past um, with good reason. Um, most of us are do directed differentiation, and we have our own cell types of interest, so we can share with each other how to make these different cell types. Um, a lot of it is evaluating and employing novel technologies, uh, different applications for stem cell biology. And, and all of this hopefully is going to trickle back to you guys, to client laboratories that come and use the core facilities. Um, it makes, you know, hopefully it's going to enable all of us to be able to do better things. And that's really the goal. Wow. And, um, I just should add to the list of stuff that you do. You also freeze down cell lines. You bank them. You wake them up. You uh, also sort a lot. Cell sorting is a thing that your lab does. And um, what what else does? Yeah, am I missing anything? I think that's generally it. I mean, you know, hopefully we're helping to develop. I you know, I think for me as a scientist, some of the most exciting things to do is develop novel technologies. So. Um, you know, in, in my postdoctoral career, and then when we started the core, uh, we did a lot of back development, which I know uh, you've been able to to use to very good measure in in the Parkinson's field. Listen, Mark, um, Mark, you taught me everything I know about back and a lot of what I know about stem cell uh, biology. So I. Um, I do give you credit because that whole you we should just say Mark in his postdoc invented a whole uh, stem cell application to purify cells with uh, reporters and when we say backs we mean bacterial artificial chromosomes. Uh, why don't you describe it because it's your your stuff? Right. Okay. So 
uh, backs are, I mean, it's, it sounds sort of science fictiony and futuristic, but it's really, it's just a big piece of DNA, just a hunk of DNA. It's usually genomic DNA. So it contains not only the coding regions of the gene that actually make a protein, but the surrounding context, the surrounding sequence that's not expressed that sort of controls whether that gene gets turned on or off. And then what we can do is take and drop a fluorescent protein like GFP into that, the, into the switch essentially, so that instead of turning on a gene of interest, you now turn on GFP and that will make your cell type of interest glow. Um, so that's really the basis of that technology. Yeah, and at the time that was a big deal because in the past people have been using plasmids, which don't really take the whole gene of interest. They take like a snippet of the promoter because right. they were limited to what, 2000, 10K? Uh, 2 to 10K, whereas backs can cover, what, 100 to 300K? That, when I say yeah. K, I mean 1,000 base pairs of the genome. So yeah. uh, this field has, I guess, moved on to talons and CRISPR lines, but this this was, you know, for making transgenic uh, cells that glow green or red or whatever color, uh, this was a big deal because it was an improvement on, uh, it, it more mimicked the, the natural genetic uh, gene functions and reporter activity, uh, therefore. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. And I, I think there, you know, there still are groups that are interested in making backlines, um, and they probably will continue to be for some time. There, there are other applications. So one of the other things that my core has done is um, in a collaboration with Boris Reitz's lab at, at Columbia, we used that technology without GFP to just increase a gene's copy number. So this is another way, and, and of course, it's still under its, the control of the gene itself, right? So um, there are other different applications that I think we'll, we'll probably continue to use BACs for, but yeah, it's, it's an all-CRISPR world these days. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, yeah. A, it's definitely a CRISPR yeah, world. We've talked about CRISPRs here before. <laughs> yeah. they're, they're just seem to be where it's at. So, yeah, but, they're like, all the but, but like anything, like TVs, you know, next month's TV, you know, you buy a TV, next month there's a new one, it's better. So, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily always what's better. What you know, certain techniques are good for certain things, and maybe certain techniques are a little more amenable to your system. So I think, you know, and I don't know, man. I've never, I haven't really gotten into CRISPRs very much. I, mean, I might not be able to do it. You know, I, I hear, you know, it might be still early. So sometimes techniques established that people are using are not necessarily, you know, long gone. I think you uh, can still get a lot done with with technology, even though well, you know, new is evolving around. In my experience, CRISPRs. CRISPR's the truth, um, but that's just me. <laughs> um, so, Mark, why don't you tell us, you're a virologist. Uh, explain to us how you came to stem cells. Right. So, um, it's it's actually, the, the long version of the story is probably too long. We probably have to break, break this podcast up. But uh, in my graduate work, I was studying a virus called pseudorabies virus, at that Princeton, a, right? That was at Princeton. At Princeton, yep, in, the, in Lynn Inquist's laboratory, who's just a, an amazing, amazing scientist and a, a wonderful person. Um, I was really lucky to be able to spend that time there. So that lab, though, the Inquist lab, what they study is this virus called pseudorabies virus. And this is a virus that basically makes its home in neurons. Okay, so we were interested in understanding how the virus, and I think... God, I don't know why. I think you guys had talked about this in the past as well. But these viruses, they will they will enter neurons and they get transported 
back to the cell bodies of these sensory neurons, and then they, they'll go dormant in you. And, you know, as we sit here and talk right now, all of us have these viruses in our nervous system. You're going to have them in you for the rest of your life. And then at some point later on in your life, they can reactivate. They can be transported back through, down the axon, back to your skin, and that'll give you a cold sore. Yeah, it's probably, I was going to say, if Yosef and I were talking about it, it sounds like we were talking about herpes virus. Anyway, keep... keep yeah, keep, and right. her, herpes, herpes is messed up, too, because it's got, like, glucocorticoid receptors. It knows when you're stressed out. It's like, I'll take advantage of you now. You know, it's like... I, <laughs> yeah, but, my, but you... Well, well might, might be a time, good time to get out, right? If right, you're a virus exactly. And your host is going down, uh, let's bail. Yeah, <laughs> But tell us, get out <laughs> tell us more about rabies. I think you've said that's the most deadliest virus. I, like I've heard you tell me scary stuff about rabies. Yeah, ra- rabies is another uh, one of the viruses that lives in your nervous system, and and rabies is bad because it is one of the most. I think it is the most fatal virus that you can get. If if you've got rabies, you're in big trouble. I think at this point there have been a few cases, a few documented cases of people that were infected. Um, that did not die, but most of the time, you're in you're in big trouble. I feel the, yeah. I feel like though is rabies like like does it exist or is it just like this? Yeah. Thing? You know, like yeah. oh, you're gonna get rabies. Dog bit no. you. Uh, this is if you do get bit, you can get vaccinated after the fact. So it's it's a different virus in that uh. way. It takes a long time for the virus to get established in your in um, your nervous system. But once that happens and you start to show symptoms, you're in, you're in bad it's shape. Right. Yeah. So, so if then, you get bit, go to the doctor. Yeah, there's only been like a few cures or people who have recovered from it. And they're, it's sort of like quack therapy at this point. Like it's not sure if this one doctor cured somebody through this technique. And it's no, it, it's a deadly, deadly disease, rabies for humans, Yep, yep. So if, then, Mark. So then, you were studying this pseudo this this the lab yeah, was pseudo rabies. Yeah, it's actually an unrelated virus called pseudo rabies. So named, I guess, because you know they're both they infect the nervous system. They cause similar neurological symptoms, and I guess uh, back in the day they were confused for each other. Um, but yeah, pseudo rabies is a great model for understanding the herpes viruses because they it doesn't infect humans, which you know, as somebody on the bench, is sort of a concern. Uh, so it gives you a little bit of safety, but it's pretty lethal to animals and it, it travels swiftly through their nervous system. So if you want to study how the virus spreads through the nervous system, it's, it's a really good model for that. So I did a lot of primary cell culture and dissections and did a lot of neuronal culture, uh, when I was a graduate student and, um, towards the end, I started to get very interested in host cell genetics and, and the idea of being able to, try to combine viral and host cell genetics to try to understand how the virus was doing these tricks, how it was able to move around in the neurons. And, and um, it took me a long time to be able to get this animal that I was interested in that was a, a, a different, a mouse mutant. And I had to go on a long trip and, and give a talk to a lab and teach the student how to do the dissection I was doing to be able to get these animals from them and, bring them back and try to establish my own colony. And I had to pioneer how to, to do the genotyping from each pup from the dissection and, and make these little neuronal cultures that were then genotyped that I might be able to infect. Um, in the end, my whole colony 
I, I wasn't able to get the mutant that I wanted to. I spent about a year on this project. And during this time, I was reading about how you could take mouse embryonic stem cells and just make them neurons. And those mutant yes cells existed, but I just did not have the wherewithal. You know, I was reading these papers, and they were just a foreign language to me. It just wasn't going to happen, you know, where I was. At, at Princeton, we didn't really have any experts in stem cell biology. Um, so after that whole thing crashed and burned, I thought, damn, you know, if only I knew how to work with these cells, and um, so much could happen. You know, we could do so much in virology. And, and so it seemed like it was going to be a trending and of course, at the time, obviously, it was all all the rage and exciting, and um, was really an emerging field. So um, I decided to go to the interview with uh, this hot young investigator named Lorenz Studer at that time. You know, which was about two thousand and two when I finally graduated from Princeton. How did that go? It went really well. Um, I mean, the lab—it's just amazing for me to see how much everything has changed. Um, you know, I just mentioned how, how great of an advisor Lynn Inquist was to me and how he's, you know, he's still a mentor in, in my mind to me, um, you know, forever as far as I'm concerned. And um, coming into Lorenz's lab, um, it was really important for me to try to find a, another mentor that was going to be good. Because if you've had somebody who's good, uh, going to someone who's bad could be pretty tough, you know, tough to swallow. Um but yeah, it's it's amazing to see how much things have changed because it was a very small lab at the time, and uh, Lorenz was not established at all. He was, you know, he's a young hotshot from Ron Mackay's lab, but it was still early. You know, who knows how things are going to turn out? And it's been amazing to yeah, to be boy, able to, that that really didn't pan out for Doctor Studer, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, all I all I know is when I interviewed with uh, Lorenz as a graduate student, I came out of his office feeling like you remember those old Maxwell tape uh, cassette tape commercials yeah, where the guy's sitting the on the couch, back. yeah, he's sitting <laughs> on the chair and like the hair's blowing backwards. I felt like that's what had happened when I walked out of his office, and I was like, oh my god, I got to look up like parthenogenesis and all this all these terms i never heard before and i was like my mind was blown almost so i that's why i was asking how your your postdoc interview went with him yeah no it was it was great and i pretty much knew that's the guy i wanted to work for you know i mean it, it wasn't much question for me and the other thing that was i think really influential for me was that um i worked with a guy named greg smith who was a postdoc at the time in linquist lab and to uh, be with somebody who was young and dynamic and was, you know, just in in the lab, on the bench, um, pushing ideas around, hanging out and drinking beer and talking science. I mean, this was sort of what I wanted to recreate. You know, I wanted to be able to to have somebody who was young enough to still be in the hood. And at the time, you know, I had to compete with Lorenz for hood time all the time. He was uh, he was formidable. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, that was great. You know, I mean, being able to just sit and pipette next to your advisor and, and talk about ideas is uh, fantastic. Yeah. And um, I, I guess you're still so, doing that in a way. Just, you lost the pipettes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, uh, changed, but yeah, no, it's, it's been a real honor and, um, it's fantastic to, so, be able to work with somebody like Lorenz. And so, so on that note, on that note, you guys, yep. uh, you and your lab, uh, t- tell us about the future. What, what do you see in the future with your lab or with these uh, various projects you got going on? Um, 
I know you're still making neurons and all sorts of stuff. So why don't you uh, share with our audience uh, the future of your projects or what sure, you're currently sure. doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest projects, um, maybe not surprisingly, after I said everything, is um, you know, and for those that don't know, my lab is is still right next door to Lorenz Studer's lab, and and um, he has a major influence on the direction that we take. Um, and my lab has been is part of a consortium that's led by him to try to take midbrain dopamine neurons to a clinical utility, which again I know you guys already sort of framed up in in Yosef's podcast. Um, so part of what my lab is trying to do is take uh, Sonia and Jay's protocol, um, and then take that research grade protocol and make it something that would be compatible. Uh, for clinical utility. So and just, so, just, just sorry, Mark, for clarification. Yep, Sonia, sure. Sonia Cricks, right? Is yep. that her? And Jay Wan Shim were right. postdocs, or our postdocs in Lorenz's lab, and they had a Nature paper describing. That's right. Um, 2011. You know, authentic, the generation of what we call authentic uh, midbrain dopamine neurons from uh, pluripotent stem cells. Sorry, I just wanted yep. to give a context. Yeah. Go, yep. no, go ahead. Yeah. Sure. And uh, and to go back. And, and sort of use the language that you had discussed before, Chris, which I think is really good. We've got to take that recipe, and and now we have to change ingredients, right? So what, what we need to be able to do is try to make something that still tastes good, but with recipes that are going to be okay for going back into the clinic with. And that's may sound not too bad, but it turns out to be pretty tough. Uh, you know what, man? I I I've never appreciated that more until recently when I've gotten involved in similar situations and also in, in the reagent world. You know, everything at small scale is at small scale, but when you need to bring it to large scale and or incorporate other regulation now right, that's going to be put into it's a whole different game, and it takes takes a lot of a lot of optimization. So. I can appreciate that, and, and I'm glad you're talking about this because for everybody out there interested in stem cells for therapy, and they're always saying, you know, where's the therapies? Where are the therapies? Where are the therapies? Um, you know, we there are there is a careful process that is a, has to be taken, and so you're hearing a little bit about it tonight, and that's exactly what Mark's uh, Mark's talking about. Right. I think part of the problem too is that it's early days, right? So, um, the FDA is the organization that sort of oversees all this and they can provide guidance for you, but there's no real path, right? So, so you, ha it's up to us to really sort of try to do our best and then bring them something and then they will either say it's good or yep. maybe not good. So that, that's an additional complication. And I think as the field matures, hopefully the path becomes clear, but you know, all of us are sort of winging it at this point and doing our best to try to, come up with something that will be acceptable to them um, and also to the cells. And it's because, all you know, de all defined everything, right? All defined everything. That's not necessarily the case, actually. Uh, um, that's the goal. Yeah, so when we that say all goal. defined so, everything, explain that. Uh, okay, so, sure. Um, what you would really like to have or what the FDA would like to see is when you say defined everything, that essentially means making purified components of everything, um, recombinant proteins that are, are clean and pure that we can put into this recipe to make our product. And that, that's the goal. There's three different phases of clinical trials that the FDA has. They have what's called a phase one, phase two, and phase three. 
And at the earliest stages, in a phase one and maybe phase two, you don't need to have completely defined things. Um, there can be some animal-derived products in there. There's lots and lots of testing that needs to be done, so you definitely need to show that your product is, is going to be safe. Um, but there are some allowances that are made because you know there, there is the realization that trying to get a good product is tough. And there's a lot of... Um, risk balancing and risk mitigation that goes on here. So you don't want to make a perfectly clean, perfectly defined product. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did you just say risk mitigation? Because I remember Sally saying that word. What is, oh, man. This, 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 yeah, I probably, this term. I probably got it from listening to Sally. I mean, this is, this, but that's, that's it, right? I mean, this, you, you need to balance the risk that you're going to bring. Risk is, is really the key word, right? I mean, you, yeah. you want to bring... You need to bring a product that hopefully will work, but it needs to be safe. No, I understand risk. It's just and, the mitigation part sounds like a lawyer term, and I just it, you know it's. <laughs> and here you have two two people trying to accomplish the same thing in a similar amount of time, so I'm sure they are on the same wave level. That's pretty crazy. And so yeah, I, should, I should say though, that's cool because now we have Mark Yosef following up Sally, so we have very relevant conversation here, episode to episode. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, Sally and I recently had a conversation about Gantt charts, which, which is another thing that um, I think you generally don't think about in the normal world. But when you start to move into this clinical reality, that's what starts to happen. What are, what are Gantt? Explain these, it. These, uh, essentially, they're little logical flow charts um, that we need to bring to our advisory boards and to the state of New York to sort of show them our logical flow chart of how our project will run. And, you know, decision trees, essentially, over time. This is your business plan. For scientists, this is a business plan. I mean, for it's the like, It's like, you know what, it's like, it's like timelines with milestones, you know? It's yeah. kind of like, right. um, you know you know what I mean? Over three years, in the first three months, this is you do, and there's a milestone, right, Mark? Something like that. Yeah, that, that's right. And then, you know, once you hit this milestone, you'll go left or right, and then you're going to do this next project. And I, I don't know if I would exactly say it's a business plan, Yosef, because I, I feel like that was more the the grant application itself. Yeah, yeah. That that was sort of the business plan. Now we now we're, you know, we've entered into a contract with New York State, essentially. Not essentially. I mean, we've entered into a contract. <laughs> period. And so um, this is really laying out how we're going to do it. And I think the example that New York State gives is it's like building a bridge. Yeah. You know, so it's it's us saying, okay, we're going to have the foundation poured at this point, and you know, um, we're going to get the the beams up at this point, and, and so it's a roadmap of what we're going to do. And of course, I guess the complication for us is that it's not, you know, we're trying to not only have this contract of building the bridge, but we need to figure out how to make the bridge here. Well, you know, at this least is not a well, at, and true technology. Well, at least we're in New York State and not New Jersey because they've got issues with bridges over there. Right now. <laughs> no. Man, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. So you got uh, it in. You got it. <laughs> well, you know, I just want to say, Joe, you know, for the sake of time, too, I, I wanna, I wanna be able, I wanna get to some other things. So let me just, sure. let me just do this, Mark, because I think yep. this is really cool for the audience to hear. It's a great, and for you to be involved. And in. I'm just thinking back. I was in Lorenz's lab um, at the time this happened. So there was a story uh, that Mark was really, really uh, a lead on. It was in, uh, published in Nature Medicine, and it got tremendous press. Um, and it was uh, basically a therapeutic cloning paper, therapeutic cloning an individual Parkinsonian mice. And so really for everyone out there, 
what it basically was is really the first time they were able to you know take from this mouse that had that was that was parkinson like that was given in I'm, I'm making air quotes parkinson's disease or symptoms thereof uh, a plura, you know a stem cell line was made from its i think it was the tail right mark from a sem- almost right. and then turned into a, a line that was able to differentiate into the neurons that were dying and those neurons were then subsequently transplanted back into the same animal and alleviated parkinson's symptoms so what you had was for the first time proof principle of that circle closing that you can take a stem cell from someone and put it back into that same someone and alleviate a disease. And to me, I'll never forget that because it was so exciting because it was a field I was really just entering and I really got to see it come. It came to fruition, right? I mean, it was in a mouse, but you saw it. Um, and so now you find yourself, Mark, involved in building it for the human and and almost, you know, you're going to be taking it there. So that must be so cool for you if you look back. You know, like we talked about coming from a lab, doing vir- virology, getting interested in stem cells in the application, and then being able to see all of that, right? It must be, it must be an amazing thing. It's, it's very cool. And I, I feel very fortunate to have fallen where I've fallen. And, and I hope it's just the beginning, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's been 12 years now, but um, hopefully we're just getting started. Well, well, I mean, it's I'm, I'm I definitely believe it's the beginning. I know Yosef does, and I hope everyone out there listening to the Stem Cell Podcast does. That's why they're listening. So, um, with that, Yosef, why don't we ask then Mark where he sees? You know, we ask Mark people come on and interviewing about clinical trials and things like this. Um, where where you where they see the most kind of you know where's the therapy going to come from? You know, if you had a predict. Like you see them viable therapies coming from from stem cells in, in the short term from the long term. Yeah, well, I'm an avid listener to the podcast, so I feel kind of bad about just following blindly along with everybody else. But I'll jump on the RPE bandwagon. You said blindly along, no pun intended. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you are good uh, with that blindly, you, you know, the no pun intended on that. That's good. Yeah, that's, okay, so uh, I'm going to jump on the RPE bandwagon because it has all of the advantages that you guys have already laid out in the past. Um, you know, it's easy to operate on. Um, it's right there and you can sort of monitor and, and follow what's happening. Uh, but, but I do think that hopefully we've got a good chance to, to attack Parkinson's as well. And um, hopefully we'll get there, but it's, it's going to take some time. Oh, well, you know, I'm sold on that one. Uh, <laughs> that's a good number too. So, uh, yeah. That's- well, I, I think, I think like just Mark mentioned before, I think anything is, you know, I think it's definitely possible. It just, there's some roads might need a little bit more, you know, paving first before you get through, right. you know? So by, by all me, I, I, that, that'd be at least my take on it. Um, all right, so let's see, Yost. Do we go to the funny story from Mark and let's see what he's got up his sleeve? Yeah. I have a feeling it might be in, involving one of us here. <laughs> So we typically ask Mark for funny stories from our interviewees. So uh, if you got a funny story from your scientific world, yeah. So let's, let's uh, do it. So in Ghost's podcast, I heard him talking about the uh, 2010 meeting in Bellagio, which was definitely one of the best meetings of my life. It was a great time, a lot of fun. Um, I probably have like 40 or 50 stories from that trip, and and um, some of them are, are not safe for a family friendly podcast. <laughs> But one that I, I can share is, uh, you know, so this meeting, it's a neuro stem cell meeting, um, a lot of our European colleagues, and it's just a fantastic meeting. I mean, the quality of scientists there are just amazing. 
So we're, we're at the meeting and it's, you know, it's small. So you interact with lots of people. Um, I'm, I'm sitting down at, at the meeting and, um, Anders Bjorklund comes and sits down next to me. And Anders is like a god in the Parkinson's world. He was a pioneer in fetal cell transplantations. Um, I have a huge scientific crush on this guy. I yeah, mean, you he's, do. He's, he's amazing, right? So, um, I'm like a, you know, a nervous freshman in high school when, when the most beautiful girl in the school sits down next to you. I'm, I'm sweating and trying to, th- you know, trying to play it cool, but, but think through how I'm going to be able to, um, start to talk and interact with him and naturally segue into conversation. And, you know, but meanwhile, we're at a talk and talks are going on. So at some point he gets up to go get a glass of water and, while I'm imagine how I'm going to start to talk to Anders, Yosef sits down next to me. <laughs> you know, Anders' computer's there, his notes are there. Um, and so I go to Yos and I'm like, Yos, um, you know, Anders is there. And he says to me, and I, and I quote now, you snooze, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like trying to, to say, no, you know, you got to move. Oh, but of course there's talks going on also. So I can't make a huge <laughs> to do about this. And, and, and then Anders comes up and just grabs his laptop and his, and his paper and starts to walk <laughs> off. And I, Dude, I'm, like, I'm <laughs> sorry. I, oh, Anders, I'm terribly, I don't know he, what's wrong with this guy. You're like, who is this guy? I don't know him. Mark, <laughs> to be fair, I, I, I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but I, 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 I kind of was, I was just as shocked when I saw him come and pick up his stuff because I was the same giddy little girl for him. Like when I, you know, and I did not realize I had taken his seat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Yosef, both of us are blubbering like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm really sorry. And, and Anders is, you know, the nicest guy. He's just like, oh, I'm sure you two have lots to talk about, you know, and, and then he dashes off. And I'm thinking to myself, not not really. I talk to Yosef pretty much every day. So I'm yeah. over him, you know, like, come back. But, yeah. but then he was gone. That was it. Yeah, I tried yeah. to give him his seat back. It was just too late, and I totally stole his seat. I still feel bad about it, so I'm sorry. You, you Dr. snooze, Bjorkland. you lose. <laughs> snooze, you lose. <laughs> Another great thing that happened at that meeting, so you know, people probably forget, but this was a meeting where um, the Icelandic volcano, whose name I won't attempt to pronounce, spewed ash everywhere, and we were stuck in Italy. In paradise, um, Lake Como. We were in paradise, Lake Como in northern yes. Italy. Yeah, yes. I didn't feel bad for you guys, but I way. know there are worse places to be stuck. That's for sure. But um, you know, nonetheless, we'd been there sort of for the week already, and and we had these things back at home we had to do, um, and so all of us sort of were ready to go home, and and we weren't sure how long we were going to be stuck for. And at some point, you know, I came to the realization that we were stuck. And I was saying this to Yosef, like, we're going to be stuck. And the quote that I have from him is, he, he said at one point to me, you're annoying me with your realistic facts. <laughs> That's another classic Yosef line. That's funny. Yeah. You have some great lines, Yosef. No, oh, he's, he's just got a great memory. And, and I, I think he had a log of some quotes. Would you yeah, call him yeah. Yotes? I, ha- I, I literally have a Word document called Yotes. <laughs> 
Because I had to write them down. No, maybe, well, maybe we'll have to add a segment to the show where we do oh, Yotes man. and we just have like random Yosef's like, quotes. Those I, are great. I have to say, uh, those conferences were great. I mean, some of the best scientific minds in uh, Parkinson's disease. And, you know, remember all the uh, the dinner we had uh, with Bill oh, yeah. Langston and Ole Isaacson? That was just one. I'll never forget that. That was, that was, was a was pleasure. There was another Yote at the dinner actually so we we go to we go to this dinner with langston and i i mean it's what ron mckay and ole isaacson and i mean it's just a who's who of stem cell biology nancy wexler and lorenz of course lorenz so we're sitting there and you know we're we're at this fancy restaurant and um you know i'm trying to order a sophisticated meal because of where we are and the company and everything and Yosef orders his food, but then he orders French fries, you know, in Bellagio. Nice, yes. Yeah. So then I say to him, could, could you be any more American? And then right after I got done saying that, he says, oh, yeah, and can I get some ketchup? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, he, he could. He could be one of those. True blue, my man. You are Fantastic. true blue. Okay. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're going to have to end it there. And uh, uh, Mark, can you uh, stick around for a rant? Actually, I think you, you got quite a rant of your own before we yeah. end the podcast. And sure, I like it. Sure, I've got a rant. I love when the, I love when the person we, we're interviewing brings the rant up. That's, that's great for me. So let's do this. I'm ready. Give it to me. What do you got? You ready for your rant? Let's yeah, rant this, this is like somebody coming to your house and bringing you dinner. As the best. Yeah. <laughs> I got my fork and knife. Let's eat. So my rant is that I'm mad that Jamie Thompson didn't get the Nobel Prize. You're uh, mad that Jamie Thompson did not win the Nobel Prize. So let's get, let's get some background for everybody. Jamie Thompson, yeah, so, go ahead, Mark. Uh, Jamie Thompson is, is another scientific crush of mine. I, he, he's the first to isolate primate monkey ESLs, and then he, um, I believe it was in 98, isolated human. And it was really that backbone, it was really Jamie's work that led to everything. And so, um, you know, Shinya's, Shinya Yamanaka's discovery of IPS is huge. And I certainly would not want to take anything away from Shinya. But to me, the, the, the Nobel Prize should have been the two of them. Yeah. Um, yeah they gave I, it to him and uh, Shinya and Gruden, right? They gave yep. it to Sir John, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, again, I don't want to take any away necessarily, but gosh. So then here's, so here's, let's say, so here's the, here's the argument, I guess. So if you'd never had pluripotent stem cells, you never had human embryonic stem cells. So, so we, we, these IPS cells are fantastic, obviously, but they're, oh, they're, they're compared to something, right? And so the right. comparator is a human embryonic stem cell. The gold yeah. standard. Okay, it's the point. gold standard. And without, well, Jamie's and, discovery, you wouldn't have that. So, in, in every, you know, we always are trying to compare IPS to human ES. So, the argument would be without that, you have nothing really. You yeah, know? Well, so, I think it goes beyond even the gold standard, though, because really Shinya used ES genes as true. a mechanism for screening, right? Very so, you, you, don't, you don't even have that. 
Yeah, you but know, you, you know what? The, I'm gonna... You wouldn't have the culture conditions to grow the cells in. You wouldn't wouldn't have the whole framework that was really required. Just to play devil's advocate, I'm going to say, okay, but all right, say uh, with this analogy, uh, Sh- Jamie Thompson discovered gold and Shinya turned lead into gold or st- whatever, you know, he had the Midas touch and that was more valuable in terms of uh, the Nobel committee, I guess. I guess. I mean, it's less like let's, chicken let's or the not egg, forget, right? Let's uh. not forget also, though, that um, the Thompson lab also yeah. published a paper on human iPS cells uh, the same true. day that Shinya did. That's true. So, Instead of uh, KLF4, he used, uh, what, LIN28, or was it? Right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, well, let's, okay. let's I mean, Shinya, you know, did the first proof of principle for, for mouse, and that, you know, that goes without saying, and, and that's that's a huge thing, but... Well, you know, I think we're discounting anything that that Yamanaka did. That's like, you know, checkmate, you know, sure, definitely. But but let's look at it in isolation. Is Jamie Thompson's discovery Nobel Prize worthy? I mean, that's really the question. I think so. If you really think about that, I think it is. I mean, like, without that, this this field, where is it right now? Yeah. No, I think without a doubt, personally. Yeah, me too. I just want to be a contrarian. Sorry. I no, no, no. You got to be in the rant. I mean, I think a lot of people, I mean, I don't know. Do people feel this way? In the, what's the pulse? I mean, do, 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 are there, are there, I mean, is this a discussion that happens? You know, that why didn't he get it? Or is this, well, uh, either way, it just did. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, anybody out there with some comments, let us know what you're thinking out there. I'm curious to know because I, mean, I, I agree, Mark. I, I, I definitely think well deserving of that for sure. And who knows? You think he'll get it in the future, or this was the chance? I think it was probably the chance. I, f- I fear it was more of a political decision. Probably. Oh, man. That's fear, isn't that the way of the world, my friends? I, I guess. Can't escape yeah. politics anywhere you work. You could be a janitor, and there's still bo- politics. So. so so with that let's 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 wrap this up i just want to say um if you uh, we had a cut you know we we could talk to mark about his work forever we had to fit it into this hour podcast but um you know mark you can find him online you can you can email him and you can get it you can get in touch with mark i mean i don't know if mark wants to give his email over the podcast but i'm sure you can find him if you want to look him over up at, uh, in google nowadays mark will be giving a talk at the, the conference we talked about the uh, next gen stem cell conference you can hear about his work there uh he'll be at uh, basically most of the meetings I know you're going to ISSCR Mark probably in the summertime yep. so uh, you could find Mark you should definitely ask him questions if you have some if you're interested in working with stem cells and you're by New York City he's the guy to check out so thanks my man for coming on thank you guys so much for having me was- alright yeah. Yost man you want to take us out with a little music yeah and uh, thanks a lot for that rant we needed that yes sir <laughs> <laughs> take care Mark <laughs> take it easy guys <laughs> <laughs>